I'm Micah Utrecht, Associate Editor at Jackman. Today is tax day, the last day for Americans to file their taxes. Opposition to taxation is a long-standing gripe of the right out of a belief that rich people deserve to keep their money because they earned it. In other words, taxes impinge on their freedom. Mike McCarthy argues this is the wrong way to think about both taxation and about freedom. Mike has a chapter in the ABCs of Socialism called Don't the Rich Deserve to Keep Most of Their Money. Mike is a sociologist at Marquette University in Milwaukee and the author of Dismantling Solidarity, Capitalist Politics and American Pensions Since the New Deal. The ABCs of Socialism is available for only $5 on Jacobin's website. You can get it by going to jacobinmag.com store. And also be sure to listen to the other podcasts in our ABCs series, which tackle questions that include why do socialists talk so much about workers? Doesn't human nature make socialism impossible? Is socialism a Western Eurocentric concept? And isn't the United States already kind of socialist? Here's Mike McCarthy. So Mike, you don't have to convince too many people that inequality is a problem in society. That's pretty well established. been discussed at length through things like Occupy Wall Street, Bernie Sanders' campaign. But just remind us to start off with what uh, the inequality of taxation in the United States looks like right now. I think it's important to start out by thinking uh, a little bit about you know the richest 1% share of income and how that's kind of changed over time. If you look at their share of pre-tax income, that's, the, that's their income prior to taxation. Under Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, and Carter, it was about 8%. Under Reagan and Bush, it was about 14%. Clinton, 16%. The most recent Bush, 18%. And what's interesting is that as this share has gone up, we've actually taxed them less and less. Um, Average tax rates have gone from about 50% on the top 1% of income earners in the 1970s to about 30% in the early 2000s, and today to about 20%. And probably even less than that if uh, Trump can get his way with continuing to cut taxes lower and lower, right? Right, absolutely. And, and we know that basically just modest increases, or at least I, th- I think they're modest, uh, on the total tax burden on this 1% would bring a huge amount of revenue. If we, if we tax this group at, at a 45% rate, for instance, that's less than what they were taxed in the 1970s. It would bring in an additional $275 billion uh, in revenue, not to mention all the additional tax revenue that, that could be generated possibly through social spending. Uh, just to give you an example of you know you know what we could possibly do with that on a yearly basis, it, it would cost about just forty-seven billion a year to make colleges and universities tuition-free. So for many people, I think it's a bit of a leap to go from there's this inequality in society; it's a huge problem, to the logical next step in my mind, which is that we need to take this money from these rich people. Uh, there are ways you can, well, multiple ways you can do that. Uh, no one is currently uh, spelling out any serious plans for armed seizure of the one percent's assets, but uh, you can do that. You can you can get grab that income from them through taxes. So why should people make that leap from inequality is a problem to we got to go take the money from them? Well, I think first is it's important to talk about the barriers to making that leap, and the primary one is political, that, that the political system is, is essentially captured by interest groups, captured by corporate interest groups, which makes it incredibly difficult to, to, to increase taxation. But there's also important ideological barriers as well. I think it's very common for people to think that having high levels of inequality, for instance, creates important incentives. It creates incentives for people to go to school, to get skills, 
you know, to, to, to do the training that it takes to become, you know, a high level surgeon or, you know, a top level athlete. And this is this, this system of incentives, right, that, that inequality creates. I think a lot of people um, think it's actually, uh, it works that way in a way. Um, but this kind of breaks down for several reasons when we start to, when we start to sort of uh, think about it. Uh, one, it's not really that clear that the highest paid people are actually doing work that's of real value to society. And it's not even really clear that they're particularly skilled. So when I first wrote the ABC's piece, uh, the most recent data I had was from 2014, and in that year, David Zaslav, who was uh, the, uh, the CEO of Discovery Communications, made about $150 million. Uh, that's uh, that's a, a, a media uh, empire that has a bunch of different television shows. Uh, one of their most favorite, famous shows was, of course, Here Comes Honey Boo Boo. A classic. A classic. A real and, high point in American culture. And one of questionable value to... <laughs> You know the people of our country. Have you ever seen that show? I don't know. You, the, the jury is still out on whether that's true. It definitely made an impact. And I thought, you know, in, in, before before doing this podcast, I thought, you know, I'm not going to be able to top that. But I was kind of digging around a little bit and found found that in 2015, the highest paid exec was J. Michael Pearson from a corporation called Valiant Pharmaceutical International. He made 140 million in 2015. And that company has made its money primarily by raising uh, the prices of drugs. It, on average, it raised its drug prices 66% in 2015. Uh, basically, they had a, a model of merging with and, or acquiring other drug companies, firing their scientists and cutting their R&D so it would you know, increase their stock value, and, and jacking up prices. Um, for instance, after Valiant acquired Salix Pharmaceuticals, they increased the price of their diabetes medication about 800%. I don't know if you remember Martin Screlly, Pharma Bro. Of course. But the, you know these guys are 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 much worse. They're 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 doing what he did on a far greater scale. So it's it's kind of hard to look at these individuals and sort of say these people are making major contributions in our in our to our society and they're reaping the the rewards from that. Um, and I think most people get that. Like when you look at Gallup polls, for instance, the most the most recent one, 2016. Uh, about 60-61% of Americans thought that the, um, the upper income earners in our country should be taxed more. Most people get it. So there's this libertarian idea that I'm sure people like Martin Shkreli and uh, the CEO who brought us Here Comes Honey Boo Boo subscribe to, which is that taxing them would be a kind of theft. It would be a kind of impingement on their freedoms. Uh, you write about this in the in the piece. What what, what would you say to uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Honey Boo Boo CEO uh, <laughs> <laughs> about his claim that uh, that such taxation would be theft and an impingement on his freedom? <laughs> well, you know this 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 idea goes back a really long way, and it kind of has its origins in a way with John Locke, you know, early Enlightenment thinker, you know, great liberal thinker. Um, and his idea that uh, when we generate income, or rather when we mix our labor with something, when we do work, um, actually what we're doing is creating property for ourselves. We're mixing ourselves with something, and we have fundamental rights over ourselves, therefore we should have fundamental rights over that thing. Um, and we should be able to do whatever we want with it. And that's, that's usually how um, libertarians think about income. It's, it's sort of the result of us mixing our labor with something, and we should have the right to do whatever we want with that income. And so from this view, 
um, you get the idea that taxation is theft. That 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 basically, when when the state taxes somebody um, against their will, um, you get what Robert Nozick, famous libertarian political philosopher, um, thought of as coerced labor, or really a kind of a kind of slavery, if you can think about it like that. Taxation equals slavery. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it's kind of a leap. Uh, the the view is kind of based on. Um, the idea that freedom is really the most important value in society, and in particular, uh, what, has been, what has been called negative freedom, and that's specifically freedom from coercion. Um, and uh, libertarians, in particular, uh, think that this is critical and, and, and the most important value that should guide how we organize our societies. And if you're thinking about it like that, according to their view, taxation is a kind of theft. And so we can talk a little bit more about differing conceptions of freedom in a second, but uh, the liberal view, not the classical liberal view, but the sort of contemporary liberal view uh, on taxes is, is not really that different in some ways, right? I mean, I know I've heard plenty of campaigns being waged by progressive groups or unions or whoever in society saying that X corporation or X rich person needs to pay their fair share in taxes. And so... What's wrong with that framing about the uh, about rich people paying their fair share? Well, I think uh, as socialists, we need to be very careful with this perspective because oftentimes we adopt it ourselves when we talk about taxation. But usually liberals try to counter this libertarian view by basically saying something like this, that, that a person or corporation's ability to pay should determine the amount that they pay. And so this, this, this view kind of treats taxes as, as kind of a necessary evil in our society, that, that it's something that, that we need to do because there are other values that are of equal or more importance than the idea of freedom. And in particular, liberals po point to the value of fairness, right? That they, they think it's just fair that there isn't uh, incredibly high levels of, of inequality, that people that are making exorbitant amount um, pay some of that. And, and actually, this rings true in some way uh, for a lot of people on the left. We can hear it echoed a little bit in Marx's famous dictum, um, from each according to their ability, to each according to their need. And I think this basically this liberal counter to the libertarian view leads us back into something of a conundrum. Because libertarians are basically able to say, well, why is it that fairness trumps the rights of individuals? Right? Why is it that your value trumps my value? There are essentially two different kinds of values competing with each other. And you, know, you say that fairness is more important than my freedom. I say my freedom is more important than fairness. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And I think, I think as socialists, we need to sort of take a different, um, a different perspective on taxation, one that I think more effectively counters uh, both of those perspectives. This sort of gets into what... Uh, political scientist and Jacobin contributing editor Corey Robin talks about uh, reclaiming the politics of freedom, that we should not be ceding that, that idea of freedom uh, to the right, but we should be claiming it as, as the left. It's, it's ours anyway. Um, Absolutely. Uh, so what you're getting at is that uh, we're not just talking about fairness versus freedom. We're talking about uh, when a rich person has this freedom to hoard as much wealth as they want to, uh, they are actually taking away the freedoms of mass numbers of other people. That their, their supposed freedom 
uh, of enrichment means the the taking away of, of freedoms and the erosion of freedoms for mass numbers of people. Right, right, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, as, as socialists, when it comes to thinking about taxation and redistribution more broadly, uh, our view is, is really fundamentally about expanding freedom to people and also a rejection of this idea or this assumption that's in both the libertarian and liberal view that there's actually something called pre-tax income, that actually people have income that reflects their own hard work. This is central to the stories that so many uh, CEOs and other rich people tell themselves and they're sort of central to their political philosophy, right, is that uh, their wealth that they've accumulated through their corporation is all the result of their own blood, sweat, and tears that they've poured into the company. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the, you know, we've all heard it a thousand times that, that you know, somebody has an idea, they go out and they start a company, uh, they, they build a product and, you know, people buy it because they want it. And, and that all started with that individual person. But as, as people on the left, I think we really need to reject this. Um, and I think this is a key first part of kind of like the, fo- the, f- the socialist view of taxation that actually income generated in capitalism is, is not the result of individual effort. It's, it's the re- result of a collective effort, a social effort, that's only made possible by a particular set of property relations, and that's supported actually by tax-funded state action. This is, this is kind of absolutely uh, critical to understand. In, in both the liberal and the libertarian view, income is the result of individual effort and possessed privately before the state intervenes to take a part of it. But this is actually one of the core fantasies that capitalism is founded on. I mean, we, we know that capitalist, the capitalist economy is not actually self-regulating. It never has been. It requires state action in a number of ways that are actually f- absolutely fundamental uh, to keeping it going. And that requires taxes. I mean, you could just think about a couple of, of examples of this. Think about property rights. Property rights that give people ownership and control over productive resources while others are excluded. You know, these are property laws that are actually enforced through, through states uh, with taxes. Or think about how uh, the government manages labor markets by providing schooling uh, to make sure that the skill needs of, of firms are met. Or how the government enforces other laws like antitrust or tort or contract or criminal to ensure that there are stable market interactions. Or, or how the government maintains working infrastructure to make sure that, you know, uh, market interactions uh, run smoothly. I mean, even libertarians, or some of them, admit that state control over the money supply and interest rates might be necessary for the, for the economy, for the government to be able to sort of rein the economy in when, when inflation's uh, increasing or to sort of encourage growth. Although they tend to want to use that power in the service of dispossessing uh, unions and working class people broadly, but yes, they believe that they should be they should have that power to do that. Right. right that's been that's been the historical effect. But but I mean, my basic point here is that that all of this is done with taxes. So the idea that that somebody actually has some sort of pre-tax income is a is really a bookkeeping trick, right? It's not. It's not a reflection of the reality. There's simply no income out there without tax finance state action in the first place. And I think that's a, that's an, a really important first step for, for people on the left to, uh, when we're thinking about what taxation is and what our perspective should be on it. So there's the, what you're saying now is that rich people's wealth 
is only possible, it's only possible for them to accumulate wealth through public investments, through taxation, you know, these, these past and present tax expenditures that, that, that allow them to uh, start accumulating money. I mean, there's also the basic Marxist proposition that uh, what is wealth, you know, how, how do capitalists get wealthy but from stealing the surplus value from workers every minute of their life on the job, right? Right, right. I mean, to, to your first point, I think that, you know, the, the, that state uh, tax finance, finance state action is actually uh, fundamentally critical. And we can actually see all sorts of different ways that corporations benefit from welfare, right? Corporate welfare. I mean, uh, there's about $30 billion, uh, spent on farm subsidies, and that's 80% of that is going to uh, major farm corporations, not small mom-and-pop shops with a dozen, you know, free-roaming chickens on, on their back lot. Uh, we, we, the state spends about $75 billion a year on other corporations to sort of promote things like energy, different kinds of research and development to different things. So there's a massive amount of state spending to, to provide a context in which corporations can make profits. But to your second point about exploitation, I think that's absolutely critical because I think uh, as socialists, uh, the next sort of step in our sort of analysis of what taxes are needs to be the understanding that income inequality, the income inequality that we see in our society and that has grown in our society is, is due to the, to the fundamental fact that class is actually relational. This is a really kind of critical point, I think. Uh, to boil it down in really simple terms, capitalists are able to accrue massive amounts of income because their workers don't. Or, you know, to state a kind of obvious point, Workers make their bosses more than they're paid. And this is really where exploitation comes in, into, into our story, right? That, that, that because uh, uh, employers have access to productive resources, whether it be a factory or, uh, or the technologies to make computer chips or the land or whatever the case might be, because they have access to those resources, they're able to hire people. And they're able to hire people precisely because they don't have access to those resources. And all that is actually made possible through tax finance state action, right? That that we have property laws that are actually um, that are actually enforced. As a brief aside, this is uh, one of our favorite points to make at Jacobin about this relational nature of class. Uh, on on the night of the Super Bowl, I tweeted from the Jacobin account: uh, "Tom Brady is a worker," <laughs> which uh, you know, Tom Brady, of course, he makes millions upon millions of dollars. He makes way more than most people do in a society more than the average worker, uh, but he is—he does not own the uh, the means of production. He is, uh, however much money he makes, he's making more money than than what he gets paid annually uh, for his uh, his you know, patriots overlords. Uh, so you know, Tom Brady is exploited. Right. LeBron James exploited. Brady and James unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. <laughs> Brady has a couple other things he needs to lose. He's got some mental chains that he needs to lose right. first. Um, but and they could also. I probably wouldn't mind if Brady paid a little more uh, in his annual taxes on yeah, his, however yeah. many millions it makes a year. Um, so you mentioned in the beginning. You know, we were talking about the libertarian conception of freedom is essentially like a, a freedom to steal. Uh, steal from workers and, and, and takes away people's capacity to achieve any kind of real freedom, any kind of positive freedom. You threw that number out in the beginning about 
something like $200 billion per year that we would have annually uh, if people were paying even the, the amount of uh, the, the percentage of taxes that the 1% paid in the 70s. Just talk a little bit about that idea. I mean, if we had that money, we could fund all kinds of social democratic programs. We could have free higher education. We could have free health care in the United States. And I think many people who are listening to this podcast understand that that's a good thing, right? That, that we have free education and healthcare and all that stuff. But it's also, that means that we would have an expansion of freedom for millions of people in this country, right? Yeah, and that's actually the important third kind of part of the socialist argument, which is that uh, the, the taxation of the rich and the distribution of that money downward is actually a really critical means of extending freedom, not actually curtailing it as libertarians argue. And it's, it's, very, it's a very critical means of extending both what are, what are called negative and positive freedoms. This is, a, these are, this is an idea that goes back to um, a famous liberal political philosopher, Isaiah Berlin, and his basic point was that, that there are negative freedoms, which are kind of freedom from coercion, um, freedom from somebody forcing you to do something, but then there are also positive freedoms, which are freedoms to do things, and you need resources for that. Libertarians uh, are sort of are all about negative freedoms and being free from coercion. But even on that point, even on that point, taxes are fundamental, right? Taxes fund all sorts of provisions that offer offer its citizens freedoms from the private tyranny of firms, for instance. Laws against child labor, laws against the physical and sexual abuse of, of workers, laws about work and health uh, standards. These are all things that are tax financed. Laws about slavery. Like if we didn't have, if the state did not enforce laws uh, that were basically not allowing me to own you, you know, we would find that slavery would be a it's thing. pretty messed up that that freedom has been taken away from you. <laughs> right. You know, this it's it's a result of coercion. Yeah. Um, but so even on even on even on those grounds. Uh, libertarians, um, their argument doesn't hold up. Um, what they don't care about at all is positive freedoms, and this is something that that socialists c- should be concerned with as well. And that's the that's the freedom to actually realize your goals, realize your dreams, to live a, f- a flourishing life, right? And you need resources to do that. So when when we redistribute, when we sort of say that we should sort of tax the rich and sort of um, move that money into other sectors of society, what we're what we're actually doing is we're we're giving people the capacity. To sort of achieve their goals, whether that be whether that be through education, to develop skills, to sort of go into the kinds of occupations and, and forms of work that you want to, or just being able to enjoy a vacation somewhere. Resources are needed needed for, for, for these kind of things. They're needed to kind of realize people's goals. And so this is this is kind of the socialist view, is that is that actually taxation is fundamentally about freedom. The 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 income that the 1% or the capitalist class, however you want to think about it, has is an income that was, was, was kind of generated through this, the fact that, that they have property rights to things that allowed them to hire others, and that taking part of that and sort of redistributing it actually creates more capacities for people who don't have those property rights. All right, Mike, so I haven't quite fully worked out this phrase yet, but, but I'm going to try this out on you. So we always hear from nationalistic bellicose right-wingers, freedom isn't free, but they're, they're right, right? Freedom is not free. And the way that we are going to pay for freedom is by taxing the hell out of rich people so we can expand our freedom. 
Taxation equals freedom. <laughs> We're going to workshop this a little bit, but but I'm I think we should if nothing else walk away from this podcast with the reclamation of freedom isn't free. It, it's not going to be free for the rich. Freedom is not free. Take you got to take your freedom from the rich. I don't know. We'll work on it. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks. <laughs>